It might be surprising to hear that there are tens of thousands of wildfires every year. In fact, a fire in a space of just a few acres may be considered a wildfire. The area of land affected by wildfires has increased annually at a more rapid pace than the actual number of wildfires. With climate change comes an increase in seasonal conditions that support wildfires, such as warmer springs and longer dry seasons. Many of us living in the northeastern United States experience firsthand the reach of wildfires. I remember smoke-filled skies in Philadelphia from wildfires originating all over Canada. Smoke that was intense enough to warrant school closures and staying indoors for many vulnerable populations, such as individuals with respiratory conditions. Because we expect wildfire frequency to continue increasing, it's important to understand their potential health effects and how studying those effects is fundamentally different from other areas in public health research. I'm Ghassan Hamra, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of research straight from those who are deeply involved in this work. I'm joined today by Lindsay Rousseau, a PhD candidate at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Hi, Lindsay. I'm happy to be your co-host on today's podcast. Happy to have you. And we're joined today by Dr. Amy Padula, Associate Professor at UCSF School of Medicine. Amy studies environmental determinants of perinatal and children's health. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, Amy, we're really happy to have you here. And we'd like to just open up with a question about how would you describe the area of wildfire epidemiology and sort of how your work fits into that looking at reproductive outcomes? Sure. So, um, yeah, the area of wildfire kind of epidemiology is really growing very quickly, um, exponentially, I would say. Um, and, um, and there's really just so much to learn as, um, as, they continue to intensify on so many levels, as Ghassan mentioned. Um, so my work is focused on exposures during pregnancy and how they affect um, adverse birth outcomes and adverse maternal health outcomes as well. Um, and we're also expanding into more ch children's health as well, hopefully in the future. Oh, that's so really interesting. I Sorry, Ghassan. Um, I didn't realize that you were looking at both um, maternal as well as paternal exposures there, but it's on all you. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say I didn't. I'm <laughs> sorry. Maybe you will edit this out, but I didn't. Uh, I said uh, maternal and child health. Sorry, I didn't. We're not looking at paternal. Not true. No worries at all. Sorry. So No, no worries. <laughs> so I guess we would ask what distinguishes wildfire research from other areas um, in public health research, you know, because when you think of wildfire research, it sounds a lot like air pollution research, but it also kind of sounds a little bit like disaster preparedness. So it's, it seems like somewhere in the middle of the two. So yeah, just um, just curious how you would characterize it and kind of give us a sense of the complexities of it. Sure. Yeah, I come from the air pollution uh, and health research world. So I found the study of wildfire is quite distinct because the exposures so, are so sporadic and so extreme compared to kind of usual fluctuations in air pollution, um, especially in California where, where I work. Um, and at averaging it over long periods of times or the usual ways of looking at air pollution don't really make sense for these wildfires exposures. So they, they um, 
it makes it a little bit more challenging. I think um, the other interesting kind of aspect of it um, that we're often studying are these combined effects of environmental and social psychosocial stressors as we did with ECHO. Um, um, but for wildfires, these disasters are stressful events in and of themselves. So, um, you know, if you think about, you know, evacuation or threats of losing your home or, or even just the worry of the effects of the smoke alone, I think are very stressful, um, particularly for vulnerable populations. So at times it's actually hard to separate these kind of environmental and psychosocial stressors. Um, and then I think also another important aspect of of wildfire epidemiology is also um, as an occupational health hazard, um, certainly for firefighters, um, which Kat Navarro is doing work on, um, but I think it's also an occupational health issue for people who work outdoors as well. So it does sort of cross over a lot of different um, kind of aspects of epidemiology beyond air pollution. No, I think, I, I think that Disentangling the effects of environmental determinants of health from social determinants is just one of the hardest things that epidemiologists or public health broadly faces. And for our, our, our listeners, Amy referenced ECHO, that's the Environmental Influences on Child Health Outcomes program that Amy and I got to work together a little bit on. But um, so as, as a follow-up, you know, you know, so when we think about air pollution exposure, we really, and, and you mentioned the way that the exposure happens, I really think that that's a very important thing to think about. And one thing that I, I, uh, I would grapple with a little bit is I can only imagine that the magnitude of exposures associated with wildfires, of course, is going to be both a function of, or a function of a lot of things, how intense the fire is, where you're located relative to the fire, the direction of the plumes and air, air pattern, air like wind patterns. So, so I guess my question is a little complicated actually. So, so what are the kind of the real peak intensities that we expect on wildfires, and how are those different in, in terms of magnitude and kind of uh, complexity of measurement than kind of more. Uh, more, I guess, I don't wanna say common, but the kind of air pollution exposures that we typically study? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think, I mean, of course this varies from, um, and I feel like it's getting, it's gotten certainly worse in more recent years. So the, um, you know, both in terms of sort of frequency, duration, acres burned, um, and, and these kind of peak levels have all been, um, quite high, especially in the California fires that um, that we've been studying. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see, you know, exposures that are um, um, you know, I think if we think about the maybe the AQI or the air quality index, which people are um, pretty familiar with. So you know, good is this kind of green level and then it goes up to yellow. Um, and then orange is when people start, um, you know, trying to change behaviors or, or reduce exposures and then red and then purple. And, but, you know, in the, some of these California fires, you know, it was sort of beyond purple. It sort of went to like maroon and black. I mean, I think they had to create like new colors from this rainbow of exposures. Um, right. 
you know, and it just kind of tops out at just like, just, um, um, I, I don't have the numbers kind of maybe offhand of, of what the peak exposures have been, but, um, but they're uh, just really off, off the charts lately. And also for extended periods of time, which I think is also unique. And even at distances much further from um, the fires, which is a, another sort of unique of these more recent fires. Well, I can certainly say, you know, from, from living in Philadelphia and having family in New York City at the time of the Canadian wildfires, you know, and having an asthmatic child, so uh, being a little bit more aware of the air quality index um, and what it's telling us and the scale of it, to walk outside of my house and literally see the entire sky as a kind of a red, orange hued sky was both shocking and like, you know, it's like you might not have measures of the intensity exactly, but if they have to create a new category more or less, then you know it's it's a problem. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, these have gotten much, much higher and and much longer and reached just so many more people in recent years, which has been quite, quite disastrous. So I really like the idea of the color coding system and the air quality index. I do think it makes it relatable to the general public as well as scientists. And I know that a lot of us were in the Northeast with the Canadian wildfires checking our phones and just looking at the AQI on a daily basis. It was a really nice quick check. Um, and maybe we'll get into a little bit about mixtures later just because I think it's really interesting. But as far as what you mentioned about the occupational exposures, um, so air pollution is definitely a hard area to capture exposure. I, I can say that I'm currently working in air pollution epidemiology. And I realize that wildfire epidemiology is sort of a, a sector within that. Um, so it's definitely not the same thing, but there's the question of ca capturing population level exposure versus personal exposure. Some people, because of their occupation, are going to be outside more um, or just spend their days differently, maybe are exercising more or less. So how do you capture that exposure? Um, so for air pollution, I would be, we're thinking about either like gridded data sets that are coming from like national, maybe EPA monitors, or you might have like people going around that have personal devices or using local sensors. There's a lot of different ways you can capture that. So for your particular work, I'm just curious how that exposure is captured. Sure. So most of my work is focused on the entire state of California. So we're often using things like birth certificates or sort of large population data sets. Um, so in this case, we know the residential uh, address of the um, of the parent at birth, but we don't necessarily know anything else about their time activity patterns or anything like uh -huh. that. So in those studies where we are relying on on that address um, for an estimate. I think one other thing that's unique um, about wildfire smoke maybe compared to traffic related air pollution um, or other types of air pollution is that um, they do tend to span a, a larger area. So I don't think that it varies as much by like around the corner or near a source oh, absolutely. or things like that. So I think a little bit of misclassification is, you know, which is expected is um, maybe not as important for, for traffic related pollution or near roadway um, exposures and things like that. But, um, but we do have some other studies in San Francisco where we're still relying on kind of area level um, air pollution um, estimates and wildfire specific uh, particulate matter estimates. Um, however, we're also 
able to interview and talk to the um, participants and ask them a little bit more about, oh, did you leave town when the wildfires came? Did you have, were you able to stay inside? Do you work outside? Do you have um, filters and things like that? And so that was just for a pilot, but we hope to expand that more and be able to get a better characterization of people's exposures because um, it certainly can vary based on how people um, cope with the wildfires. Yeah, I think that will be a really fascinating addition. So, so you know, as, as Lindsay brought up the whole mixtures thing, which for those who don't really know exactly what we mean by that, we just, we're referring to the very uncertain and un non-specific combination of exposures that people experience from some source. And so wildfires, you know, for, 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 Typical air pollution, we usually use proxies, and sometimes we get a little closer to what actually people are breathing in. But for wildfire research, you know, what do we actually know about the the particles that people are inhaling from wildfires? I mean, smoke from burning wood it seems to be you know, the obvious thing. But is there anything kind of more granular that we understand or that we could that we might be more concerned about? Yeah, I think, you know, I, the sort of primary pollutant for wildfire smoke that people are usually examining is particulate matter that's less than 2.5 microns or fine particulate matter or PM 2.5. And I think, um, you know, this in it of itself is a mixture, of course, though, so it doesn't really give so much um, information in terms of, of the um, components. Um, one of the individual aspects of that, so polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or, or PAHs are one of the, um, is a product of combustion. And this is not routinely monitored like other kind of criteria air pollutants, but um, there has been some monitoring done in the Central Valley by Betsy Noth and, um, and others at UC Berkeley. Um, it's also been assayed in urine in some studies, I think in New York City. Um, so that's another aspect of of wildfire smoke that we're looking at, um, but but it does include a lot beyond PM two point five. It also includes carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and nitrous oxides, um, also volatile organic compounds, metals. Um, so it is uh, quite a mixture. But so far, we're mostly focusing on on PM two point five. I think ozone is also part of a lot of these. Um, uh, monitor or monitors and also models with respect to uh, wildfire uh, particulate matter. It's just a little bit trickier because it's a secondary pollutant and it changes in the um, with uh, sunlight. Um, and so the chemical reactions are kind of constantly changing. And so it's a it's a moving target. <laughs> OK, um, so, yeah, that is really, really helpful for clarification for the audience. Um, so for people that are either living in the Western states or some other parts of the US um, and unexpectedly in the Northeast when we hear about wildfires, um, what are people supposed to do in order to avoid wildfire smoke? And are there things that people can do with their houses um, in terms of HVAC systems or air purifiers or anything like that to at least kind of reduce the infiltration there? Yeah, that's a good question. I think. Um... And so I think, so most of um, the work that 
uh, yeah, so during a wildfire event, I think most people are are recommended to go inside, especially when the when the air pollution is is quite high. Um, some people, I think, have used um, N95 masks if they do need to go outside, and I, I think more people tend to have these thanks to COVID. Um, so at least they're more um, widely available, or you might have one in your in your closet or um, cabinet. So I think that um, so that's a possibility. But I think for housing conditions, this is something that's of great concern to us. In fact, one of our postdocs, Rachel Sklar, is working on um, uh, housing characteristics and how they impact infiltration of wildfire smoke into the home. Also, you know, homes in California are built a lot differently than homes in New York or Philadelphia or the East Coast because the the temperatures just don't fluctuate nearly as much, so they don't need to be as kind of tight, as they say, um, and and insulated. So um, the infiltration tends to be uh, a fair bit worse here, at least on the coast. I should say um, that, that may not apply to all of California, but um, so. Um, but so Rachel Sklar is working um, at looking at different housing factors and how they may modify this association between wildfire smoke and preterm birth. And um, and she has found some interesting results um, with respect to cooling systems. So, yeah, HVAC systems, I think, are, um, are a huge plus in this um, compared to kind of these swamp coolers that bring in outdoor air to cool it, which are very common. Um, uh, in different parts of the state and different parts of the country, but um, but it's problematic because you're constantly bringing in outdoor air um, in order to cool it. Whereas with HVAC systems, um, it gets recycled and and can be filtered and things like that. So um, um, I think there are some additional studies um, uh, by Gina Solomon that um, and John Balms that are looking at. Um, adding um, filters to swamp coolers so that it adds a component in order to compensate. Cause it's, it's not like you're like, oh, I need a HVAC system. Like I'll get one of those <laughs> tomorrow, right? These are very kind of expensive systems. People who are renting don't have the ability necessarily to change their heating and cooling systems. Um, and, and so um, especially in areas which don't need cooling, it's, it hasn't been so, so widely used. Um, so, so there are a lot of uh, factors, even during the early, um, during the fires in 2018, I remember having, you know, windows that didn't close completely just because they never really needed to, but I was, you know, trying to tape them and stuff, towels in them, but, you know, I think this is really, um, you know, problematic. So I think uh, that there's, um, yeah, ceiling and, and things like that are, are necessary for, for housing. Well, I can tell you in Philadelphia, living in a, a house from the 1920s, there's not a lot of insulation anywhere. So I have my own concerns about wildfire smoke. But um, so it, it really brings up um, a point that I am curious about, which is, you know, it, individuals who are more privileged probably have less to worry about. They probably more likely live in homes that have fantastic insulation, HVAC systems that filter out air properly, things like that. So for, do you know of any examples of, of kind of citywide action plans for those who, you know, don't have those options and may even 
be at risk because they just live in in conditions that can't really handle the effects of wildfire. They can't, they live in a home that doesn't filter smoke or the, or even if they're home, I mean, if it's in the middle of the summer, you've got kind of a, um, a double whammy of, you know, hot temperatures and wildfire smoke. I mean, are there, are there plans that for relief plans for, for individuals who might um, be more at risk in those times? Yeah, that's a, a, Great point and a big concern, I think, for for us, um, especially here in California. But really, I think it's true. It's it does span the entire uh, country at times. Um, the only the one um, maybe proposal, or I'm not sure the state of it right now, but one um, some legislation that was uh, being talked about, at least in Los Angeles County, was uh, to require. Um, rentals to have cooling systems. So that, of course, doesn't necessarily solve the wildfire smoke, but it may. Um, I think this was more directed based on the um, the heat days and the you know extreme heat days um, and and climate change affecting um, you know high temperatures that that has uh, come about. So maybe in the future we'll see. Um, ones more directed at filtration. I think schools I, are under, um, I think, more scrutiny to to make sure that their air quality stays acceptable. Um, but for homes, I think that's um, yeah, there's more work to be done to protect people for sure. So to bring this around a little bit, we'd love to hear about some of your findings so far, even if they were in past published papers, and you're doing some current work um, on wildfire epidemiology, looking at, I believe, uh, preterm birth and structural birth defects or something like that. And I'm curious if there are any particular sensitive windows that you found, whether it be uh, preconception or different trimesters that might have a worse impact on these outcomes. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, that, so we are um, looking at preterm birth right now, and we have found some consi definitely consistent associations between wildfire and preterm birth across different gestational ages. We were um, very interested to see if there is a critical period, because for what we know of preterm birth, there doesn't seem to be a, a specific time that is of um, you know, critical, at least with respect to air, um, just ambient air pollution. Um, we had found studies previously that had shown the second trimester um, or even closer to birth being of um, a critical period or kind of stronger associations. But then, of course, other studies had found first trimester or other things. So um, I think it's pretty inconclusive, um, although maybe second trimester seemed to to be um, the most prominent among studies. Um, so we started looking actually at exposure by week because um, you know splitting it by trimester for preterm birth is a little bit problematic because the, the length or even existence of the third trimester can really vary. Um, and, um, and so we have we have two studies that are currently under review looking at um, at individual weeks. Um, and uh, I would say it wasn't super consistent and it wasn't um, as clear as we were expecting to find in terms of 
um, exposure periods, but I would say all of the weeks are critical and then some weeks do tend to be um, higher than others. They do tend to be, I wanna say, around the end of the first trimester um, and in the second trimester, but then again, just before birth. So um, our goals of really clarifying that were, are, um, are not exactly met, but we are trying to, to contribute to, to the continued growth of knowledge in this area. Okay, uh, so one quick follow-up there. What are the uh, structural birth, uh, yeah, the structural birth defects that you have looked at in the past? Preterm birth is a little bit more intuitive to me. Sure, so, um, so we do have a study that's just starting to look at wildfire and structural birth defects. We don't have any results yet. We haven't actually, um, uh, looked at that just yet. We're still in the process of merging those data, but um, but when we were looking at ambient air pollution, just kind of the criteria pollutants of CO, NO2, um, particulate matter, we, um, we did find associations between several of the air pollutants and neural tube defects. So um, we did, by the end, we looked at almost 30 different structural birth defects um, but we did start with the ones that we thought were the most um, likely to be associated and neural tube defects were among those. So this includes spina bifida and anencephaly. Um, and so the, our strongest associations were with um, between um, CO and NO um, and NO2 and um, spina bifida. Um, we didn't, we did find some associations with particulate matter, but um, but not as strong as some of the other pollutants, but um, we are eager to look at the kind of wildfire particulate matter and these really extreme high exposures to see if um, those exposures during very kind of small windows um, can influence uh, the structural birth defects. Because as opposed to preterm birth, we do know when these structures are being developed in utero. So the period that we're looking at for exposure is much smaller um, and much more precise. So that's um, makes it a little bit, uh, yeah, easier to to find that to to estimate that critical window. So you know when we talk about things like inhaled exposures, a lot of times, especially with wildfire smoke, we think about kind of respiratory health effects. You know, like preterm birth is now more studied and is well understood to be impacted by these things, but the way that they are impacted is, is less clear for a lot of us. So do we know a lot about the, or, or much of anything about the mechanisms or are there, are there kind of theorized mechanisms of action? I mean, just, you know, kind of big picture kind of things. I'm not, not looking for a specific molecule to call out here or anything like that, but, you know, just kind of getting a sense for the audience about like, how does how does wildfire impact preterm birth in terms of how our bodies respond? Sure, um, so I would say, I mean, oxidative stress and inflammation are kind of the, the two main kind of mechanisms that are generally um, accepted to be thought of as, you know, on this pathway between wildfire smoke and adverse birth outcomes. Of course, they're not very specific. And I think that they, um, um, you know, and there's certainly more work to be done. Um, so one of our fellows who's now a faculty member um, at UCSF, Amelia Basilio, 
um, has done some work uh, with our group to look at specific cells, specific uh, cells in the placenta that are, have anti-inflammation properties. And these are called Hochbauer cells. Um, so she's counted them in placenta that have been some that have been exposed to wildfires and not exposed and found um, fewer of them in those that are exposed to wildfire smoke. So this kind of supports this um, hypothesis that um, that potentially the smoke may be um, causing inflammation that then um, leads to sort of placental dysfunction that then leads to pregnancy outcomes. So um, I think there is some work, you know, additional work going on, you know, in the placenta um, and, you know, for this pilot where we were able to um, enroll uh, pregnant people during wildfire events, we've also collected um, maternal blood and cord blood. So we do have the opportunity um, and hope to collect more to be able to look at additional mechanisms and maybe markers of um, oxidative stress or inflammation, or maybe one day, you know, epigenetics, or, you know, I think there are a whole host of different um, avenues to go down um, to, to compare these exposed and unexposed um, people, and then also people who have had adverse outcomes and not. So to get to get to something that was brought up at the beginning is, is there anything in the space of research on paternal <laughs> contributions to this at all? Um, so yeah, we have, um, not that I know of, however, um, for another project, we have collected data um, to on uh, on couples undergoing in vitro fertilization, and in that case, we actually did collect both maternal and paternal samples um, during wildfire events and um, during you know non wildfire events, and so we uh, would have the potential to um, to examine um, differences um, at least of things that could be found in, in seminal fluid, but I'm not sure that, um, actually, no, I don't think any blood were collected, but um, on the on the paternal side, but um, but yeah, that's certainly an area of future directions that I, I'm not aware of um, currently, but certainly a lot of room in the, in the wildfire epidemiology uh, to go in that direction as well. Okay, so I know you talked about wildfire epidemiology really booming at this point and a growing area of research. So in thinking about climate change, what are some factors that you think could really play a role in increasing the number of wildfires and also increasing the spaces that might be affected that in previous years, some states might not have been concerned about this in the past? Um, well, this is a, yeah, this is, I mean, I think our continued um, you know, burning of fossil fuels is really putting us on track for more wildfires, I think. Um, and, um, you know, I think that there, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is for wildfire specifically, it does become a little bit more complex. I think there are other opportunities to, um, you know, aside from, um, you know, burning less fossil fuels. I think we have also more tools to be able to 
to manage for us and and be potentially more proactive with prescribed burns or things like this to be able to reduce the number of these really massive wildfires um, and to be able to reduce you know smoke exposures to um, large portions of the um, population but you know but they do come at a cost I mean even burning even prescribed burns will come at a cost to um, you know to burn those um, you know to for those uh, smoke exposures even if they are smaller and and affecting fewer people um, so yeah so but it's a you know it's a complex um, you know problem of course climate change I don't know how to how to dive in really um to be honest um but I think you know but certainly um the point to the point where we can you know re um reduce fossil fuel usage um and um yeah Sorry, I'm not very satisfied with that. So maybe you no, that's that's, that's good. I don't I really realize know. that you don't work in climate change research or anything like that. So I think I was thinking about like increasing number of droughts with increasing temperature, if that might might play a role, but I wasn't really <laughs> sure. So I wanted to get your thoughts. Um, oh, for so sure. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I was thinking maybe more globally, but yeah, I think, um, sorry, but we're, I guess maybe I misunderstood your question, but did you mean, um, like all the connections from climate change to heat and well, droughts. sort of do we ex do we expect the number of wildfires to increase over time or mm. decrease or sort of say the same? Yeah, I think that we certainly expect them to increase. I think owing to increased temperatures, California in the West has been in a drought for quite a long time, and mm -hmm. although the last year. Um, we did have a small reprieve um, from, you know, and and had a fair amount of rain and we're expected to this year. I think in the long term, you know, that will be um, lost and we're still kind of making up for lost ground from the from the droughts and in, in previous years. I think also one thing to worry that I worry about, I'm not sure to the extent to which this is um, been documented, but after so long, having these years or two of wildfire, or sorry, um, a lot of rain followed by many years of drought um, does give the opportunity for more fuels to grow. <laughs> and then, you know, I think so um, if we don't take care of them, you know, now while we have this slight reprieve from, um, um, from the ongoing droughts, I think, you know, we might run into this problem. Well, we're, we're most likely would run into this problem again, a few years down the line when temperatures increase as expected. So I'm actually super curious about um, the prescribed burns as wildfires. Cause you know, as, as somebody that's studied and stays marginally interested in ecology generally to the extent that anybody with kids and a full-time job can stay interested in anything. I'm very curious about like the nature of prescribed burns versus wildfires. Like there is, what's their magnitude? Are they somehow less harmful than wildfires of, you know, similar magnitude, for example, like, cause we have to do prescribed burns. They have to, that's, that's forest management. It's just part of it. But, but what distinguishes them from, um, I mean, 
obviously potentially magnitude could distinguish them, but if a wildfire could be defined as a fire in some modest acreage, it seems like a prescribed burn could be qualified as a wildfire. So what are, what are the kind of um, differences there? And should people, do they, for example, like warn communities, we're going to do a prescribed burn, you have to leave the space for X amount of time versus a wildfire where um, they might give the same recommendation or no recommendation for prescribed burns. Yeah, that's, um, this is something I, I'm really interested in. And we're actually um, in the process right now of separating wildfire smoke from prescribed burn smoke um, in order to quantify potentially varying health effects from the two. Um, I would say that, as you mentioned, it's certainly, well, it's smaller areas um, for the most part, unless they get out of control, which happens from time to time. Um, but I think they are also kind of burned at a lower temperature. And I think they are more careful to burn sort of certain aspects of the of the forest. So it, it, as opposed to when wildfires kind of go through really fast, they, they can also skip over some of the brush um, and, and so, but when they do prescribed burns, they're more careful about burning it in a way that can make it, um, um, that can really control future burns, I think. Um, so, um, and also ideally spread, um, make sure that it doesn't spread too far. Um, and then, and they tend to be done at different times of the year. So at wetter times so that they don't get out of control. Um, but, but this wildfire season is, is, is growing longer and longer, making this opportunity for, um, prescribed burns kind of shorter. Um, but I think that there is, there's certainly a question of how much more you know, I don't think there's been as much prescribed burning, um, you know, in hindsight is to say, oh, it would have been nice to have more prescribed burning so that to avoid some of those big wildfires we had. Um, but as we move forward, how much more can we handle to avoid future wildfires, I think is still in question. Um, and what cost will that be to the communities yeah, dealing with that smoke? Um, so I think that this is one thing we want to try and help inform is is how much of the prescribed burns can we handle to avoid future wildfires so it, it, you know in terms of the growth or extension of the wildfire season what what have we seen and what, what you know maybe 20 30 years ago what what would a wildfire season look like in terms of time frame versus you know wildfire season today I mean, I think it was generally considered maybe late spring to early fall um, as the wildfire season. So the summer, kind of getting into late summer is sort of the peak time where um, things are drying out and you haven't gotten the first rain yet. Um, but but now we're having these massive wildfires in November, which is, um, you know, I think it's, you know, the rain just isn't coming early enough or it's not enough to to deal with this really extended, really spring and summer with not enough rain. So yeah, these droughts are, um, are extending them. Well, Amy, I've been really appreciative to be able to learn from your expertise in this area. And to summarize what we've talked about and sort of where the field is going, I'm curious to know, what do you think are next steps for 
future research in this area, but also for epidemiologists and students that would love to get into this area of research, what would you suggest as first steps and people and maybe or data sets that they should be thinking about connecting with? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think there um, we have a ton of data and not enough people to work on it. So if any students are interested, feel free to to let me know. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're right now just in the process. We've we have um, a lot of these exposures from the community multi-scale um, air quality um, model from the US EPA and then also smoke uh, smoke days from the hazard mapping system um, that is um, provided by NOAA. Um, and so we've been linking these to a lot of kind of maternal and child health data bases and, and studies that we have in California, but I, um, and actually also it, as part of ECHO, these um, models are also being um, done there as well. So I think, um, yeah, connecting kind of health databases and, and wildfire smoke um, exposure data um, is sort of where we're at now, but we're, um, you know, and as we mentioned, we're always interested in sort of other social factors and how they impact and who's the most vulnerable and, um, and also areas where we can, um, you know, make changes to to sort of buffer these exposures with populations, whether they be housing or or other interventions. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of work to do, um, and um, yeah, I'm sure this whole area will continue to grow. Yeah, well, with with climate change, it's 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 not even really a question, is it? Yeah. Um, well, we appreciate you taking the time with us today to talk about uh, wildfire epidemiology, Amy. And um, before we go, if you are an epidemiologist out there listening, we strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in June 2024 in Austin, Texas as well as access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. Also, just a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks. Thanks.